Hey everyone, welcome back to the Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg Lafos. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. And today we are thrilled to be joined by my friend and the writer extraordinaire, Curtis Gwynn. Curtis is an Emmy-nominated writer who has worked on some of the most celebrated shows of the last decade, including The Walking Dead, The Leftovers, and Stranger Things. And hello, hello, Curtis. Let's say hello first. Hi. Hi. How was everybody? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really, I'm psyched. I've been listening to all of them. So uh, and it's fun to be a part of it. Well, I we love having you here. And uh, Curtis has been game to become part of our Adventures in Screenwriting, or aka what we did this week, or how was your week? We'll let Lorian start. Lorian, how was your week? Uh, so my week was great. I just came back from a week vacation slash family trip in Paris. And I've been thinking a lot about connection and connection with other people. Uh, someone in the TSL uh, Facebook page heard me talk on the show about how I was going to go to Paris. And so she reached out to me to set up a TSL meetup in Paris, which was very cool and very exciting. And uh, people came from all over and met each other and I got to meet them and it was really fun. And I had a lot of big rosé because that's how the waiter asked me, do you want the little rosé or the big rosé? And I said, big rosé. Um, and then another interesting that happened, you know, all the wonderful Paris things we did, it was really amazing. And my daughter was alternately, you know, bored and excited depending on her mood and the day and what we were looking at. But uh, obviously she loved Paris Disney, but, uh, one of the other things that happened, which I thought was a strange connection was that one of her friends also happened to be in Paris. So we arranged a play date at the Luxembourg gardens with her. And so that was a fun sort of, um, I don't know, like I didn't know the mom before. And so I got to meet her in Paris. So I'll always remember that and just sort of, um, how being open to connections and sort of going off the plan a little is always kind of fun, which is what we had to do that day because the Eiffel Tower was closed that day because of scheduled protests. So we couldn't do our original plan. So this other thing came up, which was probably even better. So connections and curiosity is what I have been thinking about lately and all the cheese I ate. <laughs> uh, Curtis, how was your week? Well, first I'll say I identify with what you're saying about the um, these connections or reconnections being significant. Um, I have a some a major life event coming up. I have my my uh, first child is due in like three weeks, and um, I've been oddly re all in the same span reconnecting with people I've known. Um, like this podcast is you know I've known Meg a long time now, and I'm reconnecting with Meg, and I'm I reconnected with an, a very old friend I worked with in New York for many years. Um, and lived together, very good friends, and we hadn't seen each other in a long time. He came over last night, and it not none of it intentional. So it's interesting that these sort of old the old life in stages almost. You know, like there's the my old New York life, and then or mid Hollywood when I first got here, and then recent Hollywood, and all these things sort of uh, reconnecting, which has been which has been great. So all these things are all happening. In, a baby being born, that but that happens. Then you know, and I and I think I've told you guys. You know, my wife was diagnosed with MS um, in uh, uh, in the end of March as well. So it's just been a very, very up and down, strange time. But luckily, she and I are both people who, you know, we take the hit and then we keep rolling. So we're we're still rolling. It's amazing. And of course, as a creative, like our job is to continue to create in the middle of those ups and downs, you know, <laughs> like it's insane uh, that especially if you ever have a due date. Meanwhile, everything's going up and down and you still got to sit down and write um, for my week. I wrote a spec pilot that I 
10 years ago, more, I don't know, 12 years ago, before there was such a thing as Netflix, that's how long ago, I set it up four times. And four times I had to go through the development process and get notes. And four times we love it. And four times it's going to New York. They're going to decide it's between you and another show to get the green light. And four times they passed. And now, 15 years later, one of those studios has come back and they're like, let's go out again. None of these streamers were here. We think it's time. It was ahead of its time. It's a pretty dark show that involves females, which at the time, back in the day, they were like, ooh. And now they're like, no, all these other shows have come and they see there's an audience. Um, And I'm going to do it with my husband this time. And he's really understandably excited and gung-ho and let's dig in here and let's develop it more and let's get photos of the actors that could possibly play these things. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, sure. And he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, well, I've been brokenhearted on this project and my survival brain will not let me get excited again. And I have to, I have to get excited again to create because we're going to write a second episode. Like I have to find somehow the ignorance and naivete to be excited, again, <laughs> to believe, not excited, to believe that this could happen after it's been, I've been hit four times. Um, but you know, I'm going to do it. People I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah. it's just a constant, effort to become naive again, to put on blinders in a certain way, to get that curiosity back, even though some part of your heart is like, oh, oh, be careful. Oh, 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 because of that mourning process that can happen. You don't know. You don't know when things will come back around. You're never sure. And that's why I'm always, you know, try to be very, I can get upset like anybody and I can get really like, you know, caustic with myself and into my mind with others. Um, but I, I try to stay on good terms because you just don't know, you don't, you, you don't know when things might roll back around. And, um, so yeah, I'm with you. We, you never know. I I'm keeping, uh, I'm keeping an open heart about it. You never know as you, you should too. Know. And I, it sounds like you are. I'm getting there. I'm, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a process to, uh, of course, the more you get to know the characters again, then that's you guys a reason could to be get excited. dead inside like I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Curtis, you did talk about uh, back in the day. Mm. So we, we love for people to tell us, uh, for our listeners, how you did get into the business, because I know you went sure. up through sketch, right? And uh, Yeah, and improv. And, but, uh, yeah. So like, it, how, what was that process for you? Well, it, it was the late 90s, um, and I moved, I, I was sort of, lost. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I'd been in bands, the very practical uh, career path of being in in alternative rock bands. And I would been, and I was like, well, my brother and I, and we were working at these and working at these, and we lived in Portland, Oregon, and we were in these bands and they just didn't work out. We were not uh, the best. And we came back to live in Connecticut for a while, which is where we we're originally from. And then we, I was like, well, I guess we'll go to New York city. You know, I, we didn't have anything. We didn't know what else to do. And we had that courage of ignorance that you're talking about, this naivete that we would just go to New York and be fine. And we did. And it was disastrous, but it worked out. You know, it was like you're barely surviving. And um, and one night I got a um, call or an email from a fr- an old childhood friend of mine named Brett who said, hey, and I don't think he really understood what it fully was either. He goes, hey, there's this theater in town 
um, that just like opened. And it's the people who have this show on Comedy Central called Upright Citizens Brigade. And at the time, Upright Citizens Brigade had, you know, this sketch show that we both really thought was very funny. And he said, they have a theater. And he's like, and anybody at any time can just run up on stage and say whatever they want and like do whatever you want. So I don't think he quite knew what improv was, but he had a set, he had heard something. So I was like, well, I'm interested to see them live. So I went and it wasn't that, it wasn't the four, it was all these other performers and all these other shows. Um, and they were like, I had never, I was just electrified immediately. And this was in, in like 99. And I was like, oh my God, whatever these guys are doing on stage, I, I want to do this. Like, I got to do that. It's so funny. It's so, it was so uh, uh, just incredible in person and live. And so I went to the booth there and I was like, how do you do this? They go, well, you have to take classes. And then I started interning at the theater to get free classes because I was broke. So I would get free classes. And you would do everything. I mean, it was this a disgusting New York City theater. I literally would shovel dead rats out of the basement, you know, and awful, disgusting things, taking care of cleaning bathrooms and everything in this theater space. And uh, at the time, Amy Poehler was like a very young um, sketch performer and on TV with her show. And so she was like our hero. Then I took a sketch class from her. And that was the my first sort of like, oh, like trying to write something, trying to write something funny, uh, other than just in like a notepad or something at home, you know, my own ideas, which I had tried to like write little stories and books. But this was the first time someone was telling me, no, this is how you do it. This is like the actual structure of this stuff. This is like how it's done. And uh, and she's obviously was even then, like it was obvious she was a mega talented person. Um, in this room of people. So I just said, okay, I'm going to dedicate myself to this. And I remember, I remember very clearly thinking to myself, I was walking home one night with the same friend who I saw last night, who we ended up working a long time together. And we had a TV show together eventually. Um, and thinking to myself, that's what I am. I'm not anything else, but a writer and a performer at that theater. And my goal is to do that professionally um, and that's it. I'm not anything else. And even though I became a waiter and a this and a that, and I worked a lot of blue collar jobs too, like I, um, I was, I, I did, you know, very come from a completely poor family. So it's, it's, I was like, that doesn't mean I'm not those things. I'm this, I'm 100% this. And there is no turning back from this. I do not have a safety net. I do not have another thing. I don't even entertain the idea that I do. And I know, obviously, you know, I'm like 22 years old, 23 years old or whatever. And so it's easy to say say that when you're 23, 24 years old and you're like, yeah. And like, I remember, you know, you're so dumb. I met someone who had turned 30. And I was like, Jesus, he's old, um, you know, at this theater. <laughs> How but did I, you get from doing the sketch work to um, being in rooms? So it took a long time, Mick, to get from getting in there, developing an audience and then getting recognized, you know, by television and by other people. And the way it happened was because a lot of the folks, you know, the, the UCB folks started in Chicago and they were in that scene with it. So they had a lot of overlap with Second City. So a lot of the folks that they knew and and, and performed with and played with became writers on Conan O'Brien or David Letterman. You know, and that's sort of where it first I first got my taste of like being able to do stuff. I got cast. Uh, to be like a little bit part in a Conan sketch 
you know, and it was my first thing. It was me and Jack McBrayer. And I was a bully who was like, like beating up Jack McBrayer, you know, just punching Jack McBrayer in the face over and over again. And, you know, so that was the first like entry. And then once you did that, you started knowing who those writers were. And then there was a bar down the street that every single person went to every single night of the week. And actually, it was just used in the television so succession. My wife is can't stand. I'm like, that's Peter McMahon. That that bar. They're in the bar. We all hung out there. We that is the place for 23 years where we all da da da. So once you so started in that social scene, then you're meeting people and you're making friends and you're you're connecting and then you're starting to get little breakthroughs. There were very little breakthroughs here and there, like getting a gig or someone you know breaking through all of a sudden and getting like cast in something uh, rather large. And then that, that, that's sort of high tide raises old ships thing. It's like once one or two people start breaking through, you know, the Rob Corgis of the world, the Aubrey Plazas and the, 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 the Paul Shears and the Rob Riggles and Ed Helms. And these guys started, doop, 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 doop. there, there becomes sort of a, a, you know, you draft off that people start going, Oh, who else is here? They go, wow, geez, like they got all these talented people. Who else is here? And you go, I'm, I'm have not been chosen yet. I am here, <laughs> here. And my, and luckily again, my friend and I, John Gamberling, who's my dear old friend and person I performed with as a duo for a long time, you know, we were just young and kind of crazy. And we just believed that if we, it was that Mickey Rooney sort of Judy Garland thing. We're like, well, we'll put up a show and we'll get the crowd in there and it'll be great. And we did, and we put up shows and people came. And then, you know, the first people who came were the peers, the Paul Shears, the Rob Riggles, and those guys would be like, oh, because you met them at the bar and you, they liked you. And then Amy and Polar and all those people would be like, oh, they took an interest. Went, oh, these guys are funny. And then they'd show up. And then because they showed up, other people showed up. They People would go, oh, those tastemakers who we know, um, they're, 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 they're like these guys, so they must also be good. And you start to draft off that. And then the very, I remember the very first thing we sold, we we went in to pitch Comedy Central. And at the time, the people who I was working with were Lou Wallach, Jesse Klein, and Dan Powell. And so we came and we were all worried about it. And we we pitched what we thought would be good. We're like really kind of bro-y things. You know, we were like, oh, it's like a college and crazy guys, even though that really wasn't our our thing. We were much weirder than that, but we didn't know. So we we brought it in and we were pitching to them. We had like three ideas and they were all in the sort of, sort of a bro-y mainstream um, style. And they, they, they were sitting across with us like, uh-huh, uh-huh, like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they got to, they got to the end of it and they're, they, do you have anything else? And we had been joking with each other um, all the time about, a biker gang guy and a nerdy scientist being trapped in a zombie apocalypse house together. And this was in nine, this is near 2000. This is pre Shaun of the dead and everything. And we're like, wouldn't it be funny if this odd couple um, were stuck in a zombie apocalypse together, had to live together in this, in this house. So we, and we had been doing that around the house with each other. And I was this guy named chains. And I bet, Hey man, like you got to do this, that, and the other thing. And, and he was this nerdy scientist like chains, you've left your beer cans on the couch for the last time, you know, this kind of, kind of thing. And they immediately, we just started doing that with each other. And they immediately were like, we'll, we'll buy it. We'll buy it. That, that's the thing. We'll take that. So they right there, you know, for us that they were like, you're going to get 
$10,000 to split. <laughs> and, and we were like, holy shit, $10,000 to split. Oh my God. After taxes, Take we home pay $470. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes, we could not. I mean, we walked out of there like, we have done it. We made it. We got it. We like, we're incredible. We've done the thing. And of course, we did a couple drafts that were insane and made no sense. And they like passed on it, but they were very nice. Um, and then, but because of that, other people heard about us, right? And then people were like, oh, they sold a show. Those guys sold a show. People also who were young and naive and didn't know anything that it was not that big a deal were like, oh my God, oh my God, those guys sold a show. And then we got, you know, people started contacting us and being like, hey, you want to write on this thing again, you know, for $20, uh, you want to write on this thing. And, and then slowly but surely we started to build up a resume, um, and I did the, I did the classic thing. I got staffed on, not staffed, freelance to send jokes in to like the man show and in like 2002 or something with John. And, you know, we had to fax our jokes in every day. And they, I believe that that fax machine's output was right over a trash can. I don't think they, it was just like straight fall right into garbage. <laughs> Because I don't think they ever looked at them or anything, but it was nice of the guy who was show running to just be like, hey, here's $1,500. But now, but what I didn't understand was that that did not mean I had like a job for life. Because I went, I was a waiter and I went and I quit my waiter. I was like, I'm done. I'm a writer now. I got my writing gig. And then three weeks later, the job ended. I was like, what? Job's over. I got paid like 500 bucks a week or something. And I had to go back to my waiting job and ask for the job back. And they gave me the job back. Um, so that's how it started happening. But it was not like a big windfall moment. Uh, I think where I'm sitting now, uh, people go, wow, like you get you get big, you get big moments like getting to work with heroes and things like that. And they go, wow, overnight success. You just like da da da. And you're like, but no, it's a bunch, a series of little moments of following what you believe is right. That's where it started from. What you believe is, is right for you being, I'm going to do that. And I'm, I'm seeing it out to the end. I'm not stopping until I really know for sure whether this is going to happen or not. That was for me. I thought I love that because it is little moments that you don't, it's not A, B, C, D. It could be A, Z, like you, things just keep coming. Do you need a partner? Oh, now I have a partner. Now I'm going to go meet this person. It's a very, um, circular almost experience. And I always say to new writers, it, it's like a, it could be a three to five year of work of writing, do, learning your craft, writing your samples, meeting people. You know, it's yes. a, it's a, it's a, it's a process. It's not a, like you said, somebody walks up and says, you, you're the writer that I need, right? Like this. <laughs> no, dream. no, no. <laughs> but I mean, it's okay no. that we still hold on to that fantasy for just a minute. Yeah, of course. One well, I mean, look, it, 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 well, it, it will happen it, eventually. It, it, it will happen yeah. eventually. And, and then for you'll be like, no thanks. No thanks. It, I don't want that billion, apple. It, it does happen. I have seen people just get like, you know, something. But I, I, when I was younger, I would envy them. But now I don't as much because I've witnessed a lot of people who get something really fast and then it does not work out because they were not ready for the thing or they didn't have any other, uh, uh, you know, powder in, in the gun. That was it. And they weren't, they didn't have the experience yet. You know, and I, like I said earlier, like, look, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm the most mature. I, I, in a failure, like this failure recently, this setback, 
I was angry. I mean, I was really mad and I vented to my representation and to my family and I vented and I still have moments where I get like upset, you know, and I go, oh, and I get all tensed up. But I will say, and this will be very hard for younger people, I think. But for me, I have, when I look back on this, on, you know, 23 years later on this process and where I'm gotten to now, I have incredible gratitude for every player involved. And that includes the people who fired me or treated me poorly or whatever it is. I have an immense amount of gratitude for them. You know, not to be totally narcissistic and self-centered, but it's, if I'm looking at my life as the movie um, being filmed, right? They're just players. I'm just a player. They're a player. Everybody there is a player. And, you know, you can take it really, really seriously and get really, really competitive and have a lot of fun with the competitiveness. Or and But sometimes you can step off set and look at your, the movie of your life and look at the people, the players and go, just an actor. They're just an actor. And they're probably lovely uh, outside of their villain role. You know, like they're probably a lovely person. And I felt that about everything. You know, I've been fired from very high profile jobs. Um, and... I was so stunned and upset and, and, but I've contacted all like those people and said, or they've contacted me in a couple of cases and said that, and apologized to me and sent me apology emails. And I said, you know, there's no, absolutely no need to, I appreciate it. It was a very kind thing to do and generous thing to do, but I don't, I view, I'm just full of gratitude that I even got in the door and that I learned all these things and that I did land where I was supposed to be and I'm doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. So I don't have like fury at people. I momentarily, I can like anybody, I'm a human being. So in the moment I can be like, well, that's an evil person or that up oh, they're an idiot or whatever. And I can get really mad, but I know that's not true. That's just something that's going through me. That's just something that's a train of anger. That's just going <laughs> rattling through me. And I go, you know, that's I'm thankful for for every aspect, and not not to get not to get too like metaphysical or something, but you know, there's this epic poem, the Mahabharata, their religious text, an epic poem. There's a these two families are warring, and one's an evil fa- part of the family, and the cousins, and one of the good. All right, the Pandavas are good, and the other guys are evil, and they the whole thing is them fighting each other for the for the uh, uh, the destiny of the world. And the evil are really evil. They're really doing some messed up stuff. And the good and but as it gets towards the end, the 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 heroes have to do a couple things that are a little ignoble in order to win. And uh, they're told uh, by Krishna and and, uh, and everyone that hey, that that's okay. You, you have to. You have to do this. It has to be done. And they have doubts and they do it. And at the very end of the book, there's one of the good brothers left. He's the king, and he's kind of walking to heaven his reward and he's walking with his dog and he sees there's like a there's like a a ladder up to heaven and he gets to the ladder and he's got his dog and 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 god appears to him and says one of the gods appears to him and says hey you can't bring your dog up there dogs don't go to heaven unless no matter what don bluth says dogs do not go to go to heaven um and the king goes well i'm not leaving him i'll sit right here I, I'm not leaving. He's my loyal and I'm not leaving him. 
And the guy says, well, you, that's good. You did, you did well. The dog disappears. And he's like, you did right. Like, that's good. You really do get to go up to heaven. So he goes up to heaven, climbs the ladder, goes into the clouds. And then the first people he sees are all his enemies. All the demon cousins are there. And they're coming up and they're like hugging him and saying like, ah, welcome. They, these are people he's killed and they were vile. And he turns to God, he said, what? Like, how can this be? How can this be? How can they be in heaven? How can this be? And the God's like, they played their part. They did their, they did what they're supposed to do. And he said, well, we're my brothers. He said, I'll show you. And he takes them down to hell. And all his brothers are in hell and they're all suffering. And he says, well, they don't get to go to heaven. You know, they just, they're stuck here. And he says, well, I'll stay here with my brothers then. I'll stay down here. And he said, that's good. You did good. And then everybody goes up to heaven, including the villains, and everyone is in ecstasy, right? And the, the message being that you're all just players. Everybody's a player. There's no reason to hate them anymore. There's no reason to be angry at them anymore. That's over. We're starting, and then the whole, the whole play is going to start again. <laughs> so get ready. It's going to, you know, it's going to go, we're going to go again. Now I'm paraphrasing some, some here. So some scholars might email you and go, that idiot got a few things wrong, which I probably did. <laughs> But that's the gist of it, um, uh, is that in the end, these are all just players, you're in it, and a lot of this stuff you can let go. And I know that's very hard when you're younger, especially because you're caught in the passion of it. And I know it's very hard when people act very cruelly and very, it, it doesn't excuse the cruelty. It doesn't, ex none of this excuses that the, the gods are saying you should fight. You should do pitch your battles and you should get mixed up there because you are playing out a role that's essential for the whole cosmic thing to keep going. And again, I don't want to over-aggrandize our work, but I like thinking of things that way. I like going into it feeling that way, being like, hey, we're adversaries for now, but I don't hate you. And I don't, I don't wish ill on you in the long run or anything, or even in the short run, huh. just playing these parts. I think it's amazing to strive for enlightenment. The reality, as you know, is the day-to-day -day struggle with that yes. is intensely difficult and challenging because so many of our emotions are so close to the surface and we feel slighted and that cruelty has been heaped upon us. It's so hard not to take things personally. So just as a warning, like we're all in a journey oh, yeah. on this yeah. path and that there are days when you're like, ah, yeah, I got to pass, whatever. I'll just move on and do the next thing. But that's because I have other things going on that I can do that. Right. And it it is very important to me, this project, but it's not like this thing I've worked on for, you know, six years, you know, so it, I was less emotionally attached to it in a way. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know. But um, it's a but I think I think it's, it's a, a struggle. I, yeah. I think yes, I, I think. But what I like what you're saying, Curtis, with that story is it is a way to remind yourself to not take it personally. And sometimes we're taking it personally because of an unconscious echo from our own childhood. We're actually creating a story around the past or around the um, situation that isn't actually happening. Like we th we're absolutely sure it's happening, but it's actually just an echo from our, our past that our child is activated or however you want to say it. And so we're heaping upon that person or that past or that situation a lot of emotionality and a lot of meaning that isn't actually happening. It's a business. They didn't. This is what's happening in this business. 
and it feels cruel, but in fact, it's just not the widget they want right now because the head of the studio changed and the yes. blah, blah, blah. Like who the hell, like they don't, they don't have all that emotionality with it. Again, I'm not saying certain people, it, there aren't moments of cruelty and psychopaths out there. I'm not saying that, but sometimes uh, I just do need to get that distance about, wait, is this actually happening or am I creating a story in my head yeah. to emotionally view this and that story that you're telling is trying to get you to see that they're players. It's just to get present in a way that this well, is just a play. And also to allow yourself, you know, Lorian, I, I totally resonate with what you're seeing. Like I, I do get upset and I do think there is cruelty and I do think there is callousness that, that, you know, I, that I, my only, my only counter to that would be that, you know, who's, I think Alan Watts said like, um, they'll make a monkey out of you as long as you are willing to play a monkey. Yeah. Like, you know, and if you want to play that game, that's fine. You play that game then go, okay, but I know what the rules are to that game. Like, yeah. I know what that is like. And so when, when they do it, you don't, you are, you are at least aware, you're very intensely aware and it can relieve some of the stress sometimes of being yeah, like, being well, I, my, I'm not saying that they're, they get a pass or anything. And I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do battle. You know, I mean, I'm going to get out there and I, I'm going to have the fight and I'm going to be passionate. And I'm going to, at the at the same time, I'm going to be completely human. I'm going to be a human being because that's what I am. But I gained this sort of insight that I'm playing here. I'm doing this thing. I'm part of this. And when the game is over, that you can put the Monopoly money back in the box and put the box away and you can all go uh, be fine with one another in the long well, it is, but I, long but long. Curtis, you and I worked together once and I'll never forget the day <laughs> that we went into a meeting. This is all remain nameless. And we came out <laughs> and you looked at me and you go, Meg, those are white walkers. And I was like, <laughs> what? Cause I was upset by something that had happened in the meeting and I was so confused. And why would she say that? And I was so confused. And you're like, because they're white walkers. And I'm like, Oh my God, they're white walkers. And you were like, yeah, they may not have blue eyes and all that shit, but those are white walkers. And you were just so kind of clear about it. And like, it doesn't mean we should quit. It doesn't mean anything. it means know that we're working with in this case, in this yeah. moment, for whatever reasons going on here, they are playing the part of the White Walkers and yeah. they are dangerous and you can't rely on them. You can't trust them. No. You can't. They have a completely different motive than what they're saying. They do want to eat your head. Like, watch out. Yeah. And I was like to know oh. what role, what role people are playing. You can't yes. just assume that everyone is playing the same role as you. Yeah, right? Everybody's That's not right. there That's to right. be your parent and support no. you and tell you how wonderful you are. Like, That's like, not why they're there. For, for This is not a South for inequity or um, you know, tyrannical, uh, processes, you know, it just isn't, it isn't like you don't go, Oh, well, geez, it's all okay. Because I'm purely Zen. I'm not purely Zen. I'm very human. And, and I do get mad and I do feel, and what I don't like to, I don't like to see things that are, um, unfair or, or rigged. I don't, I hate that. I hate that. It makes me, it makes me really upset and I get all, you know, and I, and I get, I get passionate. I just think that, I, and again, it sounds like the, the, the Buddhist cop-out. It does. It sounds like the cop-out, um, which I don't believe is a cop-out, but I understand why people do, which is there's a place beyond all of that. You know, there is a place beyond all of that where it, that always makes me laugh when I think about it. I can't help it. As dark as things get, and maybe that's just me, 
I don't know. But when things get extremely dark, I have a place that I'm just like, well, that is funny to me. Like I, I have to laugh because I stand outside of it as well. There's a part and of me, the comedian. Know, I mean, that is your skill set too. I mean, yes. You, I mean, but you are also, a comedian. But also, I think of it like you know, it was once described to me. Uh, I can't remember if it was from a book I read or or someone said this to me. But there's like, you know, the world. Uh, let's say is the ocean and all the problems and the issues, and you're on the beach, and the waves, the tide comes in and knocks you sideways, and you fall down, you roll in, and then it, like rip tides pull you out, and all this stuff, and you you feel crazy. To in to try to reimagine yourself as a post buried in halfway deep in that beach, you know, made of stone. And as it comes in, it, you are in, there's part of you that it, that the little part of you that's rolling around in the sand. The actual core of you is immovable. It cannot be affected by those things. Actually, it just is, and it goes beyond. It's it exists beyond. Uh, pain. It exists beyond suffering. It exists beyond happiness. It, it's not even happy. It's not even a place of happiness. That that would be reductive. It just is a place, and it doesn't move. And if you can, uh, when you're getting rocked by the ocean and the, the troubles, to try to, for me, I would say, trying to identify with that that post in the beach, that 100 foot tall post that's buried 50 feet deep and 50 feet above the water, um, that is immovable. If I can, when I can identify with that, I feel better and I'm able, you know, you can talk to that part too. I had a moment in my life that I was really buffeted. Really. It was the worst, some of the hardest stuff of my entire life. And I was so overwhelmed by it that I sat in the dark with a notebook and I just asked my questions and let my hand answer. Yeah. Yeah. and, And it did answer. And I got to a part where it said, just stay in the boat. And I was like, what do you mean? What boat? I Just stay in the boat. Don't get out of the boat. Just stay in the boat. This is what you're supposed to do. Just stay in the boat. And it was so weird. Like it was talking to an ancient yes. part of myself that could see beyond the tumult and the hurt and the and the anger and the rage and the it could see it past that. And in that, well, you know, I'm a big Jungian uh, uh, fan of Jungian psychology and it's um, you know, that's act is called active imagination. And uh, in young, and you know, where they go, Hey, you want to start a conversation with whatever pops up. And I do it all. I do it all the time. Um, and I used to just do it in my head. And then I started doing it on paper and you'd be very surprised at what, what comes up and the shocking things that do reveal themselves. But to tie it back to, to writing, I'll say, you know, with the, with the young and stuff too, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm look, if you're already, if your listeners don't know already, they know now know I'm wacky. Uh, so I, I believe in in picking up, um, signs, you know. And in some cases, they're literal. I, I I remember I was on the while I was on the leftovers, I was particularly frustrated one day and feeling like I couldn't contribute properly and that I was no good and and uh, couldn't get the job done or something and very frustrated, but I felt that, you know, boy, I have a lot to, I do have a lot to offer though. Bye-bye. And I'm in my car and I'm driving back from the Warner's lot and I'm, I'm, I'm on Barham or whatever it is. And I'm driving home and I'm at a stoplight and I'm like, God, I, I feel like I, I do have something to offer, but I, what's it? I turn and I look out and it, a sign just amongst the trees and the bushes, there is a sign that says work for yourself. <laughs> 
Oh my God. With a number <laughs> under it, you know, it's like whatever, one of these scams that's like, hey, no, hey, call this number. And but it said work for yourself. And I was like, oh, another instance of that is I was uh on the walking, I was let go from the walking dead after one season. And it was very like I wanted that job. I felt like I had secreted that job. I felt like I had arranged that in my mind. Like, I want that job. I have no drama writing experience whatsoever. I have no, at the time, no spec script in drama at all. I was like, but I was a fan of those comic books and I want to write on that show and I want to get into drama writing, da, 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 da. And I eventually got on the show for season four through all these very strange, for me, what particularly strange means. And and a lot of it tied back to UCB. The, the you know one of the executives had taken classes from me at UCB, and so he was like, "I remember you. I really loved your classes. I'll introduce you." And then the showrunner um, Scott Gimple uh, was a, an improv guy. He liked improv, and he had heard of me and, and all this kind of stuff. And so there were connections there, odd, very odd connections that you would not think were connections. But I was let go, and I think probably rightfully so. I, I in the sense that I wasn't ready. You know, I thought I was, and I and I and I kind of wasn't. And um, there were other things that I won't get into, dramas and the off-screen stuff that I will not, I won't get into. But I, when I was let go, uh, to to his credit, very graciously, Scott called Damon Lindelof or emailed him and said, "Hey, I got this guy, and I think he would be great on your new show that you're doing, The Leftovers." So I. Go over, you know, it's my very first day at Leftovers. I get, I'm nervous. I'm like, it's my second job. And I'm working for Damon. It was, you know, I loved Lost and everything. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a little intimidated. And my, you know, Tom Parada is there. He's in the room. He'd written election and he's like in the staff with the room. I was like, oh my God. And so I, I, I'm waiting to go in. I'm the first one there because I got there really early. And I'm sitting on like a little couch outside the writer's room. And I have an iPad in my lap. And a dictionary word of the day pops up. Now, I had never gotten a dictionary word of the day. I had not set my iPad to do that. I had never gotten one before, ever. And it popped up as an alert. And I was like, what? And I looked at it and the word was terminus. And my heart sank down to my stomach. Terminus, the entire season of Walking Dead, was working towards the entire cast getting to a place called Terminus where waiting for them were cannibals who they didn't think they were cannibals. They thought they were getting to somewhere great. And it was, but that's oh, actually no. cannibals. And I went, my first thought was, oh, fuck the synchronicity shit. I don't believe in any of this. Yeah. You know, like just swipe this away, but I couldn't shake it. I could not shake it. I was like, and I never got another dictionary word of the day ever again on my iPad. And that was five minutes before I was walking in the room and people will go, Oh, you're full of shit. I'm telling you, I wouldn't, I got no reason to lie to make it sound like I'm that interesting. It's just something that happened. And for me, even though leftovers was an incredible experience and I, I'm again, like Damon was incredible for me, helped me and helped me get my next job. It didn't work out there, you know, and back to back jobs that did not work out. And I felt like on day one, I just knew I was like, when I saw that word, on day one, I just went, oh, no. Oh, no. And I want to, I do want to emphasize, and I'm not just saying this for, for any kind of political reason, but Scott Gamble and, and Damon, I have nothing but love for and, and gratitude for, even though it didn't work out for me at those places. 
Like they gave me an education and they needed, I think they needed someone who they didn't need to educate, <laughs> you know, but they gave me a, an education um, and taught me a everything about, you know, how, like how things work, both politically, both on the page, in rooms, outside of rooms, you know, and I got lessons. Anything you can share here to our listeners, what you learned in terms of in the room, what, anything that well, you could share? I, I think like, I was in my first job at, at Walking Dead. I mean, like I was too, I was too um, out of control. You know, I wanted to contribute so much and I wanted to be like important that I was like, talking all the time and like, or, and, and trying to, to spew like what I thought and da, 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 da. And when I was down on, on set, um, you know, I, I kind of, I think I like just messed up with the wrong people down on set, um, you know, getting in, not, not, not horrible confrontations, but, but confrontational enough where, cause I didn't know who they were. And, you know, and I was like, well, you know, people would give me notes and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do that. You know? And I would just do the scene as I wanted it to be done or, you know, and that caused like at that particular show caused like serious problems. <laughs> and uh, I did not realize that. And I, what I learned from that was like, you really got to get the lay of the land and you, you have to ask yourself, do you really want to be there? Like, what show are you on? Like, what, what are you doing? That's that thing, Lori, and I was th saying about like, what role are you playing? Was, am I trying to be the showrunner here? Am I, do I think I'm like going to tell people how to do things? That's clearly not my role here that I should be playing. But I didn't know that, you know, I, I went in thinking, Hey, my, my moxie and my guts got me here. So if I keep that going, then that that'll be the thing that that makes it work. And then I think I on the on the leftovers, it was the reverse. I had been so burned by that feeling that I went the other way, where I was like really quiet and only put in things, you know, and and I did make contributions I'm proud of to that show. Very proud of. But I, I was, it was, I think it was like, I think he expected, I think Damon, I don't know. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he was expecting me to be more like I was in the interview with him like this, very talkative and animated and, and like, da, 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 da. when I got in there, I felt the nervousness of not wanting to make a mistake. And I went completely the other way into my shell. And that was a problem too. And then I had to find this sort of middle way, this, this, this middle path, you know, I ended up working also for Kurt Sutter for a while. And, and every single step of the way, I was like, geez, am I the problem? Am I like not, you know, but I had to realize this is a career, you know, and, and the folks were never really, they were not mad at me. I thought they were like hated me and were mad at me. They weren't mad at me. It just wasn't the fit. It just wasn't like right for them. And now as I've gotten older and realized I've had to put staffs together too. And I go, right. <laughs> you know, I like all the people but it has to have the alchemy. It has to be a fit. And if it's not, it's so hard to do the show. It can't just put a group of talented people together. That's not what it is. You have to, they have to be able to serve the roles that you need as the boss. And um, I really came to appreciate that from all of my bosses, including Meg too, who taught me a ton. You know, Meg took a big chance on me. I can't believe the, the, the wonderful people who have given me opportunity, even if it didn't work out. And to circle back to that thing of like, I, it's just sort of, you got to look, I look at it now and it's sort of like, there's no, I don't feel it. There's no enemies. There's no, I, I don't feel, there's no animosity or 
there's just sort of like, well, I've learned who I want to work with. I've learned how to work. I can recognize situations very early on now through experience. I can tell when something's going south. I can tell when something's working very quickly. And then also how to pivot, you know, and go, okay, if it's not working, um, what are my options here? Okay. If it is it is it irreconcilable? Is it is it a, is it just a shipwreck? Okay, if it's a shipwreck, let's get honest. Let's just talk to the to the primary people involved and say, hey, it's a shipwreck. Or is it that I'm not right, or that someone else isn't quite right? You know, and you sort of have to just sort of learn these things. And I know it's so we'd all love it to be so straightforward and so easy, but it's just isn't. It's sort of like these learned social skills. And I, my, my wife is very obsessed with personality types. You know, the, uh, I figure what it's called. Um, you know, the, the Enneagram, is that right? The, the new, yeah, that's the new hot one. Very yeah. skilled. She's like very, very different skilled. than the Myers-Briggs. I think it is Myers-Briggs, isn't it? They're, the Myers-Briggs is like the four letters. Enneagram is a number system. Oh yeah. So, she, she, she does both. She combines. Yeah. 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 So I'm a ENFP 7W6. I'm uh, the same. I always, I'm the exact I always forget same. like what it. Like, I'm an ENFP too. Well, yeah. There you go. A lot of artists. And and it, the funny thing with that was I was like, oh, this is crazy, this is silly. But like, I would advise people to educate themselves on that because when you learn the way, you know, you can't live in generalities. Everybody's a person, and you want to meet them where they live and 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 treat them as a real person, not just like a, a type. But if you can learn pe the personality types, which I have found after like getting into it with my wife, very real, very real. And if you can learn how to talk to people the way that they learn, the way that they talk, the way that they connect with information, it's so help. It's like such a relief because so much of it is that I have found the conflict in rooms and places is the, the style clash. Like it's like you just don't mesh in like, the style of communicating. So I would say if you're having a tough time in a room or if you're having a tough time in a partnership or whatever it is, that part of it might be like, well, how the heck does my, make the effort to learn how the person and the people you're working with learn or talk or communicate or work. So this will come in handy for you as a parent, um, <laughs> learning what my daughter's communication style is and how to get the best response out of her in certain situations is, I mean, because most of the time as a parent, I feel like I'm in a hostage situation and how to negotiate myself out of it or to avoid the hostage situation before it happens. But it's so much about, right, like we're going to go to someplace new tomorrow. She doesn't like new places. She gets very stressed out. Okay, we need to look at Wikipedia first. I need to tell her what I'm excited about, right? Like there's a whole, so I think it's this actually really inspiring mm. for me that I need to take that same tactic out into my professional life a little wider to be more curious about how other people work rather than I, hoping that they just figure me out, which is what I would prefer because it's a lot less well, we work, all want honestly. Like, Come on, aren't I? But you know, <laughs> I, I have to give as much as I expect to get. So well, I guess sometimes that's good advice. Sometimes as an emerging writer too, you expect like to be parented in that room yes, or yes. And it's like, no, 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 that is not what's happening here yes. at all. You are a tool in their toolbox. You better figure out what tool you are, why they hired you, like, because that's what they need you to be doing. I agree. And again, I just, that's why I want to emphasize like no sour grapes for me with any of this, because I, I have to take ownership of what, where my shortcomings were in all of this, you know, rather than blaming them, I go, or blaming anyone, I go, well, yeah, there might've been some uh, uh, 
you know, uh, there might've been some issues at any given place or time, but I have ownership of that because I'm there. I'm choosing to be there. I'm choosing to show up. I'm choosing to be a part of this. So what is the only thing I can control is my role in it. That's the only thing I can control, especially when things are feeling so out of control. And I do think if you can become self-possessed and do that, that other people react favorably in my experience. Because they can feel it. They can feel the shift. Like I was in a situation once where in my head I was screaming, why am I here? Why am I here? And then all of a sudden I was like, why am I here? Yeah. Like, let's answer the question. Yeah. Why, Meg, are you here? Yeah. Like, you chose to be here. What do you have to learn? Do you still want to be here? Why, if the universe puts you here, look around. Yes. Why are you here? What is there to learn? You know, and sometimes when I would have interns, as in, when I was an executive, I would be like, I don't know, do the dishes? Like, it's okay. Like, you can be mad that it's an intern, you have to do the dishes, or you could do the dishes and let people see that you're willing to do, like, get the rats out of the basement. Like, there's reasons. You don't know how all those tentacles are going to move and learn and connections and just be where you are. And and I agree in striving. Like, I'm not, we we have a lot of emerging writers who, like, I wanted to ask you, uh, Curtis, my friend's daughter is graduating. She writes sketch comedy at her college. And her question for you was, um, does she have to go into improv and be a performer? She doesn't feel like she's a performer. She feels like she's a writer. Um, in terms of comedy writing, um, if you're not an improv person, you're not, you don't want to go on stage, but you do want to write comedy. What it, it what would you say is? A, a I don't think certain- you have to become a, a performer. I do think you should take a class in it though. You know, it's like, I I, th- I think I'm not, this may not be true anymore. I know, but most of the theater schools, the directors have to take acting classes and the act- actors had to take directing classes. It's like, so you know what it is. So you at least know what it's like. If you never have performed, you know, and you're treating performers like, you know, trained seals um, and you don't know what it is to do what they do, you might, really not understand what they can bring to the table. And you might become tyrannical and say these, just say my words, dummy, like, you know, and you don't want to be that way because actors elevate the work. Um, So it's like, you want to be able to understand at least in a rudimentary way, the pain and suffering that comes with having to be that (laughs) level of vulnerable on the surface. Yeah. You know, like, you know, we as writers, I think a lot of, not every writer, but I think a lot of us we, we just don't have that. We don't live that on the surface moment to moment all the time. And we don't have to do that in front of people when we do, when we, we don't have to, we can choose to be tucked away if we want to be. Um, whereas that their whole job is to get up and be that for everybody. And they, you know, obviously, you know, we're, with the writer strike coming up, there's a lot of writer pride going on and we are the backbone and, 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 and all this, but I will say just to give actors their due, they're the face for good and for bad. You know, we all get upset because or annoyed sometimes because actors they're like, everyone's like, oh my God, the actor. And if you're with them, you know, at Comic-Con or something, people just hand you the camera. You know, I know how to work every phone camera because I'll be walking with an actor and they just <laughs> hand it to me and go, take our picture. You know, nobody wants a picture with you, right? But the, the opposite is true too, though, when something's a stinker. And they're like, oh, that ruined their career. They're a turd. They're, they can't act. They're bad. You know, they're the face for good and for bad. And so I understand that. I, and I think a good way to get in touch with that is to suffer the burning yourself on stage or at least once or twice to be like, oh, God, this is brutal. And, and also it just makes you a better writer because you go, okay, so that's how the mechanics of this work. Right. Um, so I would recommend her to do that. And 
You know, I think it's, I would, to advise your friend, I, it's tough because I came up in a completely different era. There were, the internet, as far as it is now, it was, you'd be shocked. It just wasn't, there just wasn't the uh, opportunity. You couldn't, it, to get a camera that you could then put video on the internet. I mean, this was like an incredible hassle in the late nineties. Couldn't afford it. You know, it was just a different, it didn't even occur to me that I would be doing that until like early 2000s. Then I started being like, okay, I can make, I can make things. I know it's the old, the old deal, but I think you do have to have some things made independently of you to show people. Um, you know, maybe not for uh, uh, get it breaking into television proper, like um, uh, drama and uh, I shouldn't say television proper. That's that's dismissive. I mean, like traditional scripted television, you know, yeah, you probably don't need to have shot anything or anything like that, because I mean, come on, that's that's too much to ask of everybody. It couldn't hurt, though, if you can, it'd be great. But if you're doing it could like differentiate sketches, you, it could differentiate. Yourself. It could. It yeah. could vary. I mean, like. You know, I, I made a, a series of shorts in like 2004 with my friend John, and it became a TV show. It would not have become a TV show if we didn't sh- we hadn't made those shorts. Um, you know, they were like, "Oh, okay, we get it." They never would have gotten it. It was an adult swim thing. They ne- it was too weird and out there. It would not have been understood on paper. You know, well, and so it, a lot yeah, of- it lets the person know who you are as an artist too. Like, what is your voice? There it is. Yeah. There's your voice. It's there. Yeah, yeah, and and so I, I think like. Getting involved with other people is the main is getting mixed up with if you if there is a scene, if there is something around, you do want to go to those places because that is how people make connection. You make connections. Everything I've ever gotten is because of a connect is because I've made connections, not from family, not because I went. I didn't go. I didn't even graduate college, you know, like I. I come from very little and far away from the entertainment industry, as you can uh, be in America. And it, it, I went out there, put myself out there and made friends. And then the friends, and I wasn't like, oh, this will be a good networking opportunity. I never thought of it that way ever. It was just, oh man, this person's so funny. Or this person is such, we have such a good time together. That's that takes me back to that pitch, right? Like that's my very first thing I sold in comedy to Comedy Central. It's because we were that was born out of fun. That was born out of like liking each other and riffing with each other. That's where I think really, really, really inspired funny and fun good stuff comes from. So you got to make those friends any which way that you can. And it doesn't have to be through a theater. It can be. I mean, UCB is back on its feet, I've heard. And um there are opportunities there, but you know, it's sort of like I, I don't want to be too uh, corny about it, but you got to find your people, right? I mean, you got to find your people one way yeah, or another. Yeah, and I love that and create out of fun and love and curiosity and all of the stuff. You can feel it when you read it, see it, hear it. Yeah, you know. That's the thing with stuff that's seemingly like completely dumb or like you think couldn't even be understood. It'll read because of the energy. People will be like, damn, what is that? I mean- you obviously are plugged in and electrified by it and nothing, you know, it, nothing starts a fire like a fire. You know, if you're right. on fire, people get around it. They're like, hmm, I may not totally get it, but damn, you guys are animated by this. Like, that's that's a good feeling, you know, I and that's the that. same thing when you get in rooms, right? And you're pitching, the more animated you can be and feel the better off, the better, in my opinion, this is purely my experience. No, I totally agree. If yeah. you're energetic and think this is amazing, that that infects people. 
Yes. And they, the, the people always remember uh, how you, how you left, made them feel rather than what you said. Right. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, you walk away, it's sort of like, you know, we, in, in, when I was in theater, we were always like with, with improv or sketch, we were always like you, where you end it, you could have a wonderful show. That was incredible. That if it ended on a dud, people walked out of the theater saying that sucked. It could be the last 30 seconds of the thing that just didn't work. And people would walk out and be like, it sucked. And you could have a terrible show. And if it in that last 30 seconds, you tied it together, people would hit the street and go, that was like one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And they just remember how you left them. They just do. People just do. And so I, I don't, again, I, it's tough because I, I don't like platitudes. And I, I feel like everybody, that can mean a lot of different things depending on the person depending on the type of person. There are some people who like to be left feeling terrible and they might go, I loved it. I feel terrible. <laughs> I really like that person. <laughs> but in awful. general, we can say in general, when you're pitching or talking to people, yes, how you make them feel, you have to be aware of that and uh, think about it. Curtis, you want this them to been... work with you again, right? You want them <laughs> yeah. to be like, yes, I want more of that. Whether it's feeling yes. terrible or bad or great, it's yes, I want more of that. As long as, more of that. as long as people are affected you know, and they feel, you know, uh, some sort of elevated out of the mundane. They go, yeah, especially these executives who all day long are just hearing stuff. They just want it. They're desperate to hear something that affects sure. them and gives them. You know, I think I'd be curious, Curtis, like it was very, I think, insightful how you spoke about your journey from room to room. Like you may have oversold yourself a bit creatively in the um, Walking Dead room and then undersold yourself creatively a bit in the leftovers room. So like, I think I'm Curious, like obviously your relationship with the Duffers has been incredibly fruitful. How yeah. did you like position yourself to enter that room? And can you talk about the experience of being in that room and working with the Duffers and like creating sort of your identity in the room and contributing to that room? That's a big question. Abs I hope that absolutely makes sense. No, for sure. First of all, like they are definitely the real deal. I mean, they are the the two most uh, exceptional talents um, that I've worked with in television. And that's saying a lot because everyone I've worked with has been very exceptional. So the, the, but the fact that they are able to write, produce, direct at the level they direct and steer the ship of a, of a pop culture world global phenomenon, the way they do without melting down, no, like they're very even keel guys. You know, I think they like raised their voice slightly once at me. And it was like, you know, like being, you know, even though I'm 10 years older than them, it's like, you've disappointed dad, you know, you haven't made him angry. You just disappointed him. Uh, and, and they inspire a lot of loyalty from me. I feel incredibly loyal to them um, because of how incredible they've been. And they, every day their, their work ethic is off the charts. They do not waste time. They, they do not, um, uh, uh, bother with like frivolities um, and games of any kind of pol political games of any kind. They're funny. They're charming. So I love those guys. And they brought me in um, right after I was off of a project with Meg. I got a call saying, Hey, we're putting the season three or this from Netflix, uh, putting a season threes when I went in, uh, would you care to do it? And I was, I had been very sick. I had gotten like, uh, I have Lyme disease. I have chronic Lyme disease. And I had been, this is insane. It's such a sideways thing here. I got bit by a spider. <laughs> I got bit on the knee by a spider. 
Uh, they assumed it was a juvenile black widow spider is what the doctor said. And I got very ill. And then I had a relapse of chronic Lyme and I had to get on all this medication and all these antibiotics and this thing called the Cowden protocol and all these kind of like, blah, 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 you know, all this kind of stuff. So I was very ill and I wasn't sure if I would be able to do that. Um, uh, and, but I did love the show and I did feel uniquely positioned. I felt like I knew that very well. I was those kids. I'm about two years younger than those kids in the show in the eighties. I was about two years younger than them. my brother was their age. So every reference, every idea, everything about the show, I, I knew very, I mean, like the world of it, I knew inside and out. And I knew all those movies verbatim. I knew every single thing about it. So they brought me in and they were very nice. And, um, you know, I, we talked for a half an hour or so, and I think that it was a good conversation, but when I got home, what I did was I sent them an email with a picture of me from my fifth grade Halloween parade at my elementary school where I was dressed as Indiana Jones, but not just Indiana Jones, very specifically Indiana Jones from Temple of Doom. I had like a case with these the Shankara stones in them and I had a whip and my shirt was torn and I had blood on it and I had the hat and everything. And I sent them that and I said, look, you know, this is me in fifth grade. I know this, I know this world. And they called me, you know, a couple of days later and uh, were like, we would love you to come in and, 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 and be the, you know, run the room, run the writer's room for them. And a lot of younger writers, fantastic writers. When I got there, it was very evident to me. I didn't need to run anything. They were, everybody was very talented. Kate Trefi and Paul Dichter and Caitlin uh, Schneiderhan. Like these folks were um, phenomenal. So I got in there and it just did fit like a glove. I was just like, you know, I was worried. I was nervous. I had lost jobs, you know, and, and and been nervous that maybe I wasn't cut out for rooms and things like that. I was like a little bit, you know, a little bit uh, uh, shell-shocked from some of my experiences, but it it, it worked very well. Um, and, you know, I was able to make big contributions to both, you know, the third and fourth season and now, now the fifth season. Anything so, yeah. you Anything you learned or took away from running that room in terms of advice for our, we do have pros listening to, we have yeah. people wanting to run rooms. I think like, um, well, one is like you, and this is something that I'm sure everyone else has said, you know, as a number two, like running, running a room, you, you really have to be in tune with what the showrunners want. You have to be very like communicative with them, you know, because the showrunner is sometimes not going to always have time to explain everything to you. And the expectation is you're going to know how to do that job right away. Again, it's that thing of like, hey, there's no time to educate you. If you've been given this job, you better know how to do it. So, and, and there were times I, I came up short there, and but most of the time I would say I did a good job. Uh, but that was, it's, it was about what I learned from them was to go. Just don't be worried. Don't be nervous to talk to the boss. Don't be like, hey, I'll just wing it. Or I'll just like, figure it out myself. If there's a question, go until they make it clear that they hate that. If they go, you know what? I never want to do that again. You go, okay, okay, fine. But my experience, a lot of like trouble and a lot of like uh, uh, difficulties come when you have not communicated with, with the voice of the show. And you've just been like, well, I guess I'll just kind of, you know, I don't want to bother them. So I'll, uh, I'll just figure it out. Uh, it, it's just a waste of time. 
uh, unless they've set that up as a dynamic. So that was a big learning thing for me. And then also just work ethic. They, they, those guys work at, we don't work crazy hours and I've worked crazy hours. They don't work crazy hours. I mean, they personally do. They personally work crazy hours, but they do not hold the room to crazy hours. We come in, you know, to nine or 10 o'clock and we're out by six o'clock at the latest sometimes sooner. That's it. It does not deviate. They don't, they go, because when we're there, we get it done and that's it. Yeah. Very civilized, extremely civilized. And they take on so much. And the other thing I've learned is I'm trying to step into being a showrunner is that the amount of responsibility you have to take. They take responsibility. They don't pass things off. They don't blame. They don't shift blame. They don't, there's no crying about, oh, I didn't know. And the network was mean to me or anything like that. Like, and at first, you know, which is, you know, everybody's different, but I, I do appreciate their, their work ethic because they're, they literally are not only, going through all the writing, doing passes, you know, doing punch-ups themselves and all that kind of stuff, you know, on like what we've pitched in the room and making sure that they're prepared, but then also prepping the whole series and talking to all the actors and talking to all the direct, the potential directors, doing interviews, talking to media, blah, 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 endless, endless, endless marketing, this, that, the other thing. And they, do, you know, I never hear a complaint, you know, it just gets done. So uh, now Netflix, to their credit, does give us a lot of leeway. They give us a lot of like room and time. So I have to credit them with that. They don't, there's not a lot of pressure off Netflix to like be fast and must get this done. But uh, yeah, that, those guys are great. And they're, they're like mega talents. I tell them this, not to kiss their ass, but like, I think it's true. I'm like, well, you, you know, we talk about Steven Spielberg and all this stuff. I'm like, well, you guys, the, you're the thing. You're, this is it. You are the thing. You are the new version. You're, you know, whatever you do next and go forward with, you, the, all the kids of this generation feel that way about you. Um, and they're That's well, so awesome. as they, as they get older, when they're in their twenties and thirties, they'll be like, oh yeah, man, the Dover brother stuff. Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, was, that was the fucking best. And for me, what a joy and what an honor to be a part of that. Again, what else could I have asked for? than to have been a part of something that I know a generation of kids all over the world go, I love that. And we'll remember it always. I mean, that, that's, that's, you know, that's how my heroes touched me. And so I get to be a part of that same thing with a whole other generation. And that, you know, that does not get any better for than that, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Um, All right, Curtis, we are going to, this has been so amazing. I could just talk to you for another millions of hours, but let's, we're going to end with our three questions. We ask every guest. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, Curtis, what brings you the most joy when it comes to your writing or work? To me, it's um, when people get it, like if I can write something and people get it and it, and it connected for them, they, they saw what I saw. Like they, I turn the, they turn in the thing or I, or I, or I send it to a friend and it's not just about praise. It's not just like, oh, I loved it. It's great. It's like, oh, wow, you were doing this or you were trying to do this and trying to then all these things that you felt while you were writing it, they got and you effectively communicated. I get like giddy from that. I'm like, ah, fuck yeah. Because so much of it is being misunderstood, right? Or not being able to effectively come across how you are or what you were intending or or the feeling that you had when you first thought of the idea or adapted the project. So when people get that, I just, I'm like, oh, it makes me feel that communal feeling, which I really, 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 really love. 
So good. All right. So what pisses you off about writing? Um, it, it, uh, probably other people have said this, but I, I, I think like um, the, the development business uh, side of it, and it's not because it's necessarily wrong or, or, or fundamentally bad, although I think it is in a lot of cases. I just, it, when I, when you, when, when who you're working with or where you're working has drained the fun out of everything and the thing that you loved has become a chore. I just, I can't forgive it. I, I, I go, that is, you took something that I think is so full of um, life. And now it's this thing that I look at and I, I cringe and try to find any other thing to do that day then then do it that to me is 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 that's not even death that's the living dead that's that's living with a zombie it's just an awful feeling it's awful it's so yeah. awful it's rough it's a great answer we'd love to ask um if you could go back and like get a coffee with your younger self when you were just emerging in the business what would you tell that curtis we can't, we can't like bet on sporting events and things like that and gamble. And <laughs> there's going to be a pandemic in 2019, like a sports book or something. Um, <laughs> I would say, who's to say, who's to say what's right or wrong? Keep going. And what I mean by that is not, not in a sort of moral way, because I think we should have a moral compass. What I'm, what I mean that is by choices and, um, projects creatively interpersonally who's to say what's right or wrong like follow what feels right to you because it as sitting here now i feel a lot of um luck and and gratitude and, and i'm very grateful for my, the career that i've built and hopefully will keep building the people that i've met again the adversaries i've met I'm so grateful for it all that I go, don't, I won't say don't worry. I'll say, go ahead, get mixed up, get mixed up in life, make the choices good and bad, uh, but, but follow what feels right fundamentally to you. And I, I don't you'll be, you'll end up, you'll be okay. Whether you're a farmer or a writer or, you know, a fisherman or a candlestick maker, um, you'll, you'll find some sense of contentment. Um, which is all I think any of us can ask for uh, out of life. So that that's about, that's what I would, would tell them. Cause there's no advice. You don't want to tell anybody you got to do this. You got to do that. You got to do this. You got to do that because how, who's, who's to say what's right or wrong. I love that. That's amazing. Curtis. Curtis, thank you so much for being on the show. It was my thank pleasure. You. No, no, was, you guys are the best. Amazing. I love the show. So again, it's that thing where I got to be, I was going to bug Meg if she didn't invite me. I was going to be like, oh, <laughs> I'm be on the show. No, I knew, <laughs> I knew fun. you'd be a great guest. You have so much to share. Um, thank you so much, Curtis. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Curtis for joining us on today's show. It was a delight. If you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group where the conversation about craft process and community continues and check out our Patreon page where Lauren and I are interacting with you guys more directly. Doing questions and answers and story workshops. And it's really fun. And I learn a ton every single time we get together uh, from Meg and all of the writers that participate. Uh, and uh, thank you to Jeff and Savannah for producing today. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. <laughs>